0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In the second presentation of this Apologetics Conference, we delve into a comparison of three major time periods— the age of authority, the age of reason, and the age of authenticity. We look at how people practice their faith in each, as well as what criticisms apologists answered. For our postmodern time, I recommend the strategy of discussing an issue, showing how our society is failing to address it, and how Christianity can offer a solution. Last of all, we try out this strategy on a number of controversial issues, including gun violence, sexual harassment, and technology use. Here now is part two of our Apologetics Conference, A Strategy to Reach Our Postmodern World. Of course, as you know, the first Christians grew up and spread in a hostile environment. They were not the dominant cultural force. And as a result of that, they can give us a lot of guidance for how to carry ourselves today. In some ways, I'm I'm thankful that the veneer of Christendom and sort of like civil religion has atrophied and and fallen away. I never really liked it anyhow, because then you just have like a a lot of fakers. It just didn't didn't really ring true to what I was reading in the Bible anyhow. So there are advantages to our current cultural moment as well. 1 Peter 3.14 says... there's a lot going on here. The first verse there, verse 14, talks about suffering. There's a, an assumption that if you're going to be a Christian in their world 2,000 years ago, you're going to suffer probably. Generally speaking, like there's going to be some sort of cost to pay, whether it was official government persecution, torture, execution. I mean, that's, that's obviously a very extreme situation. Or maybe just like your spouse is really uncomfortable with you not showing proper care to the household gods anymore at a more basic level. So, and then everything in between, as far as like work opportunities and other social situations. I mean, the um, pagan polytheistic faith was very enmeshed in the culture. Their holidays were all celebrating different gods and the, there would be festivals, the ritual redistribution of red meat. That's a very scholarly term for a barbecue. Uh, was what what they would do, where they would they would parade the god, like a statue of the god, through the city from the the temple to the downtown area, and then they would have a sacrifice. And, and a big part of the sacrifice is the barbecue aspect because people are subsisting on grains, and now you get red meat. So I mean, it's it's a big it's a big deal, and the Christians are saying, yeah, we can't go to that. There was a cost and there was suffering, and I think. You know, in every generation, there's some aspect to that, and we certainly are there today. Um, and then verse 14 also tells us that you should not be afraid. Don't have any fear of them. Look, expect suffering if you're going to stand for Christ, but don't be afraid about it or be troubled. Okay, this is normal. Jesus said, So they did to the prophets. Those are Israelites in Israel preaching the Hebrew bible to the people in their own context and they suffered okay so this is just like par for the course you're you're going to suffer if you want to stand with god and with his people but that doesn't mean you have to be afraid or be troubled it's going to be that's just just expect it but then in verse 15 this is what we are to do first of all in your heart sanctify jesus as lord so it's important that you're being genuine yourself right? That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not just someone you believe in. Lord means you do what he says, essentially. So you have to have a a genuineness in your heart and authenticity in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And you should be prepared to give a reason, to give an apology, Uh, not in the sense of saying you're sorry, of course, but uh, in the sense of giving explanation for your hope. Um, And ultimately, our hope is what defines our you know, a lot of other areas of life, especially ethics, I, I believe, when it says always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, that doesn't just happen. You, you have to work at that. I had this memory with Amy driving around in probably New Paltz or, or Poughkeepsie, somewhere down there, and we were doing like an evangelism outing. You know, we were just like trying to talk to strangers, and tell them about God. I don't know. It wasn't all that sophisticated. We had a group of us, like 10, 20 of us going around, um, and she turned to me in the car, and she said, well, what, uh, how do we even know the Bible's true anyhow? And it was just like a lightning bolt from the sky, like, well, I'm sure there's some good reason. <laughs> you know, but the, the simple fact is we were just both raised to believe in it, and that's why we believed in it. And it's not like that was, uh, there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, if it's right, <laughs> but it's very ineffective when you're talking to others. So uh, I appreciated you saying that. I, I don't know if I ever told you that. But uh, I, I did make up just like a BS answer on the spot for the record <laughs> and did not show her any of my fear um, at, that, at that question. But uh, yeah, we do, we do need to do the hard work to have reasons to, to uh, be able to explain why we believe what we believe. And then uh, verse 16 is absolutely key, gentleness and respect, as Jerry mentioned uh, last time. If you're going to come in a harsh way or in a disrespectful way, then you will do more damage than good, and I'd rather that you were defending atheism or Islam or something else because uh, you're making all of us look bad. So gentleness and respect is really, really key for doing apologetics and, and and defending it. And then also, back to uh, genuineness and hypocrisy again, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So keeping your nose clean, walking the walk. So I think there's just so much in these three verses that's so relevant for us today. And one of the things that I think is really important for engagement and respect is understanding, uh, like Jerry was sharing, where people are coming from. And so I wanted to... to do a little overview with you. Everybody has the handout. uh, We have extras. That's good. So what I've done here is I have three columns. On the left it says the age of authority, which is like I'm thinking of the middle ages. In the middle, age of reason, which is like the enlightenment period or modernism. And then on the right, it's the age of authenticity, which is like today, postmodernism. Okay, and what I want to do is go through these three columns with you and then talk about how we can do apologetics in each of these different ages. And I want to start by saying that this is a heuristic, which is to say it's a, it's a teaching aid. It's something that can be helpful for us to think with. In other words, there are actually people who are like, using reason in the age of authority. Okay, So like, I, I'm going to keep things very separate and very distinct, but I, I recognize that that's some, somewhat of a false strategy but I think it's going to be helpful as, as we go through. All right, so for the, think of your average medieval person, I don't know, like Dante, you ever read his Inferno, or you've got Anselm, you've got, you've got lots of people in that period, like say it's like the year 1300 or something, what's your focus in life? Well, you've got your farm, your village, and everybody knows their role. Okay, this is pre-industrial revolution, so so-and-so's a farmer, so and is a smith, and that later becomes the last name, right? But right now, you actually are a smith. It's like you smith for a living. And you've got the guy that does the shoes for the horses, and that's your focus. You have a very communal focus. Your concern is about your village, your community. Cities are small. There are no skyscrapers yet. I mean, you have multiple stories, but nothing like what we have today, and uh, people people knew each other. So th- think of a small town. Uh, for a job, uh, most people just followed in their parents' footsteps. For guys, would be typically farming or craftsmanship. For women, would typically be uh, having babies, raising the kids. You know, uh, I'm sure there were plenty of exceptions on, on both sides of that. But the options were limited. It was not like choose your own adventure. It's like okay. This is the family business. This is what you're going to do. Nobody's really all that worried about it. Or if you want to be adventurous, you can join the church. You can join the clergy, but then celibate for life. Kind of a bummer right there, speaking as a married man. And, um, or you could join the military. And that wasn't all that stable either. It depended on when there were wars. And then once the new world was discovered, then that was another option. You could like just go to the new world and like recreate your yourself but like the options were pretty much the same as the old world as far as like what needed to be done so options were limited for jobs as far as information goes you had minimal access to information you have religious education through art sacraments this is a lot where the stained glass windows came in and uh, the frescoes and the mosaics and so on where they would depict bible scenes because people couldn't read and preaching, and they, they, especially the mendicant orders. So this is a, a Catholic world where you would have uh, every village would have a church, and then you would also have these orders of monks and nuns, and some of them would be cloistered away, living a contemplative life, praying, doing battle with the devil, and then you had others who would be like in the city, begging, uh, like the Franciscans, Dominicans, and so on, and they and they would be preaching. So you would you would get to hear some information from these guys. The morality was a lot of times embedded in oral traditions. Books were super expensive and handwritten in Latin, which most people didn't really read anything, much less Latin. So and then you had inherited trade knowledge. So people tended to be, I imagine, pretty good at what they did, because like dad and grandpa and so and so or mom and grandma and so -so, like they would pass down knowledge on like how to do your role in life. So things are specialized in that sense, but even books are not really an option for your common person. As far as religion goes, we had compulsory support of the local Catholic church, sacraments, pilgrimages, relics, endowed masses, ties as part of taxes. I am a church history teacher, so if you have any questions about any of this, just let me know. And uh, but that would take all of our time. So I'm just trying to like get you into the mindset of the medieval world here. Everyone has their role. The saints are, are the ones that are super spiritual. You're not expected to be super spiritual. You're expected like if you're if you're the um, the leather saddle maker, like you're expected to make good saddles. That's what you're expected to do. You go to church, but so does everybody. You know everybody's Christian. You're born into it. You're baptized as an infant that's your role in society. If you want to be super spiritual, you join one of the orders and you become a monk, you become a nun. All right, it's the age of authority, okay? So the church determines right practice, the church determines right belief. Uh, If you ask even a Catholic to this day, how do you know the Bible is true? And they say, well, the church has decided that it's true, therefore it's true. And uh, that's like a, a debate subject for Protestants and Catholics. We would say that uh, the reason why we have certain books of the Bible is because God inspired them and preserved them and worked with people to understand them as being accepted. And they would say, no, actually, God works through the church, and the church said they were true. This is, these are the books, so that's why. So the church is always held as the authority. But then you also had some criticisms. During this period, you had a lot of what's called anti-clericalism, people who are criticizing the, the priests and so on. And what are they criticizing for? Well, they, they actually did have children. They had living girlfriends called concubines. And uh, so concubinage was a major issue. There was a lot of jealousy because the clergy did not have to fight fires. They did not have to stay up for the night watch to protect the village. Uh, they did not have to serve in the military. And they didn't have to pay taxes. So people are looking at the priests and, and whatnot and the bishops, and they're like, well, do we have to do all this stuff? You don't have to do it. So there were some critiques there. Simony was the issue where, uh, if you remember Simon Magus from the book of Acts, uh, he tried to buy the ability to lay hands on people for the Holy Spirit. So simony in the medieval period is the practice of buying church offices so that you can derive an income from them, from the tithes, but then you're not actually doing the work. You hire some like low-level... Upstart priest and he does all the work, but you get all the money, and you've got so many offices that you're you're responsible for. It's sort of like capitalism applied to <laughs> the church in that age. Uh, so you have some people getting like super wealthy, they have these huge estates, lots of like live-in girlfriends, and but then they, they were supposed to be a bishop. And it's like these guys are living like princes. And then also uh the popes got captured for a little while there and they had to live in France for like almost 70 years. <laughs> Which, so these are criticisms that were against the church in those times. The response, this would be the apologetic. So, like, if you were living in this period, what would your response be? It would be to not say Christianity's garbage. It would not be to say, "Oh, uh, there's no God." No, people are not thinking that way in this period. They're saying we need institutional reform. So they're like, "All right, let's let's get let's fix the Catholic Church, or with like Martin Luther in the 1500s, let's start something better." Uh, and that becomes the, the Protestant Reformation. So the Catholic solution recognizes that the authority remains in the church. They have this big, long council that lasts like decades, the Council of Trent. And they fix a lot of the issues with their priests and whatnot. And then the Protestants start their Reformation, and they, they locate authority within Scripture. And that's called sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And they fix the, the girlfriend issue with uh, marriage. So like priests are like, like Luther married a nun. Famously, his reasons for that were, number one, he thought it would make his dad happy, and number two, it would carry on the name, and number three, it would aggravate the Pope. <laughs> Having a, a monk marry a nun is just, <laughs> yeah, right, right to the nose. This is sort of like one way, it's like, almost like a worldview a way of thinking about Christianity and how to deal with it. All right, then you have the age of reason. So this is more like, say, for example, some of the 1800s. Now your, your purview, your focus in life, is not your village, because now you have mobility, you have the industrial evolution, you have urbanization. So now your purview is your extended family, or even just your nuclear family. But it's still like, think of like immigrants coming to the United States. One person comes, and they work really hard, and then they like bring their family over. It's always like bringing the family over, kind of a focus in this period. Now we have the old options, but now we've got factory jobs. Yay, and child labor, and sweatshops for sewing that light on fire. I mean, this is a crazy time. And then we have a lot of inventors in this period, and amateur scientists, people that would like be in a lot of different fields all at once. As far as information goes, we actually have books now. In the age of reason, you've got lots of mass-produced books. They're relatively cheap. They're even in your own language. But if you don't have a big institution or a lot of money behind you, you can't print books. You can't distribute books. You really do have a limit on what sorts of books get published. Okay? So there is a, a limit to the access there. As far as religion goes, you have voluntary church attendance based on beliefs. So you don't have to go to church. Like in the old medieval mindset, you had to go. It was what people did on Sunday, and it was compulsory. Like you are born into the church. Like to be baptized as an infant, is to like be put on the grid. It's like our equivalent of a social security number. You are a person now because you're in the church, totally enmeshed with the government. Whereas now in the age of reason, church attendance starts to become voluntary. But there's incredible social pressure to conform outwardly. Um, and i listed a couple of books there. Scarlet Letter explores this. Gone with the Wind, you, you have it there too, which is both during this period where you have a lot of like people that, feel compelled to go, even if they don't really necessarily agree with it. Uh, now, for criticisms against Christianity, we have philosophical critiques. These are like the problem of evil. How can there be a good God if there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Is he impotent? Is, does he not love us? What, what's going on there? So that's where you have this big problem of evil, criticism. People start saying that miracles are superstitious. Oh, you're just superstitious. You're, you're like one of those old-fashioned medieval people that thinks that if you do this little potion over here, then the gods will stay away or whatever. And, or the, the, the most famous medieval superstition was to put like a doll dressed up with a pitchfork hanging on the front porch because they believed Satan's original sin was pride. And so they would make fun of Satan to his face and it would keep him out of the house. And That's where the whole pitchfork with the horns thing came from. It was a joke on Satan. But anyhow... People doing that would be considered in this age of reason superstitious, ridiculous, and so on. Uh, they point out Bible contradictions, and science comes of age where it gets loose from the church. And so now the biblical meta-, meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately the kingdom to come gets replaced with the Big Bang plus Darwinian evolution and eventual heat death, uh, which is really depressing. To think about Um, so these are the, the criticisms that christianity is now facing in the age of reason what do christians do what's their response well we have evidential apologetics and that's where you just basically since it's the age of reason all you have to do is give reasons for believing in god give reasons for believing in the bible give counter arguments to the philosophical critiques and you got it you know you're set to go So I just gave like a few examples of this. This is um, John Locke, 1695, The Reasonableness of Christianity. Basically, he's using Enlightenment thinking, uh, rational thought to prove Christianity. Then my favorite title, I had to expand the box just to fit it. 1800s titles are my favorite. Natural Theology, colon, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity Collected from the Appearances of Nature by William Paley, 1802. So that's where you get the watchmaker argument. Suppose you're going along the beach and you find a watch. Who would ever say this watch just sort of organized itself through natural processes? Obviously, it has a teleology, a purpose to it, a design to it. Therefore, there must be a designer, a creator of that watch. And then uh, I just threw Case for Christ on there because I love Lee Strobel, even though he believes a number of things I don't. But... um, his case for Christ book is pretty good and his movies super awesome. And William Lane Craig, we could put it, we could put in like seriously like at least 100 authors in this box here because really Christianity just just did such an awesome job on this. And if you're not aware, search around online and stuff and you can find a lot of good evidential apologetics. And then you also had presuppositional apologetics, which is sometimes attached to a man named Cornelius Van Til. And uh, presuppositional apologetics is uh, leaning on where, like, say we were looking at the humanist manifesto and it said something like, we think everyone should have human rights. Okay, so presuppositional apologetic would be to say, well, why do you, (laughs) where do human rights come from? You know, if we're all just like cosmic accidents and just like chemical machines pre-programmed to pass on our DNA, why should we regard somebody else's rights like take for example rape i think on on naturalism rape is not only permitted but it's it's actually obligatory like you should rape as many people as you can because like your only impetus is to pass on your genetic code so like impregnating multiple women would increase the chances of that you know which is obviously a horrible conclusion so i don't think that works at all but presuppositional apologetics says well, look, you're presupposing a Christian worldview in order to make your moral argument that Christians are intolerant or that Christians are this or that. The only sense of like what's the standard of good and bad, we'll get into this tonight, comes from God. So you're, you're borrowing our foundation in order to build your house. And then you're going to criticize our house. You're like, well, dude, you used our foundation. So like that's cheating. Let's take our foundation out and see how nice your house is then. It doesn't really stand. All right, so then you have the age of authenticity, and this is kind of the cultural moment we're in now where Jerry was just sharing a lot, and I want to focus and open it up for some discussion in a couple minutes here. So now the focus is not the village, nor is it the family. It's the individual. And it's the individual often against their own family. Oh, my family, they, they think this, but I, I I think this over here. And it's actually expected for lots of folks, that when you come of age, that you move away. That's, that's considered normal maturing behavior in our, in our time. That was not considered normal for a lot of human history. Who would do that? Like an explorer would do it, like Lewis and Clark, or like Columbus or whatever. But like normal people just stayed in their village or their area. Maybe you go to like another village over. But now it's like the individual against everything else, and for a job... We have this slogan: "You can be anything you want to be," but uh, it's not really true. I don't know if you discover. I hope I'm not like bursting your bubble here. But um, if you're six foot or less, you're not going to be a basketball player. Period. I looked up the top ten actual most popular jobs in the United States today, and the great majority of people. I'm not sure exactly what percentage, but uh, these are the jobs that people actually work. Uh, So number one is retail. Number two is a cashier. Uh, Number three is office clerk, food prep, nurses, waiters, customer service, janitors, freight stock laborers, and secretaries. So those are are like the big top ten most common jobs in the United States. Um, You know, we have like in our heads a slogan, you can do whatever you want to do, but these are probably where you're going to end up. Not everybody, but you know, the, the lion's share of people. Then for information, we live in the information age. It's awesome, right? So we have democratization of the information. We have the internet. Anybody can publish a book, either a print version or a, an electronic book. We have websites, blogs. We have Google Books, social media. You guys know what we have. We have great podcasts, especially Restitutio and uh, Trinity's self plug there. Rest, Restitutio being my own podcast. I thought Dale would be here, so I actually should wipe that out now that he's uh, running late. Then, for religion, we have this, we're in this new time where uh, people are really anti label. They do not like to be labeled in any way. I personally, as an analytical person, I love labels. I would like to give you like 20 labels each and just like put you in a little box and be like, that's who you are. And it would infuriate you, so I'm not going to do that. But people in our time tend to not like organized religion. And whenever somebody says that to me, I'm like, so, like, if it's chaotic and disorganized, you're, you're in, right? They're like, no. Uh, so they want to be spiritual but not religious. They're skeptical of spiritual authorities owing to sexual harassment, embezzlement, prosperity gospel, uh, hypocrisy. You know, we, we live in a time where there are these significant skepticisms towards the old guard. And then this is what Jerry was just talking about. Religion is private, but society is pluralistic. So pluralistic means we all can be in the same uh, society together and believe different things. The old ideal of America, I think, to some degree, was this this concept of the melting pot, right, where people would come and they would learn English and they would learn American values or whatever. This is really not the, the time in which we live. People will come but they will retain their culture. A lot of times they'll retain their language. And if you meet people from immigrant communities, I'm trying to think of a, a good example from where I live, we have a bunch coming in from uh, Burma, uh, Myanmar, Burma. So there's like a lot of refugees coming in from over there. So, so what do they do when, when they get here? They all find housing together. Or like Koreans, we have a lot of Koreans in New York too, like same story. You know then the Koreans you know, they'll start a Korean church with the service in Korean, right? So this is not the idea of but this is pluralism. Pluralism is we all use the same road, we all pay taxes to the same you know systems, but like, you're doing you, I'm doing me." and I, there's no pressure to, to really change. I mean, there's some sort of like minor pressure to like get around in the society. You need to know some English, obviously, at least in New York, you do, maybe not in uh, some, some other states like on the border and so on. So that you have this idea of religion is private. You do you, but don't tell me how to live. So what are the criticisms of Christianity in our time? It's a moral critique. People say, I don't want to worship a God who supports patriarchy, slavery, and genocide. So the issue is not, like, is there a God or not? That's the age of reason. Now it's more like, well, even if you proved to me that there was such a God, I don't want to worship that God because he offends me morally. This is a really interesting move because we need we kind of need God to like make any moral judgments anyhow and we're making moral judgments on God which is just so ironic but it's the way people think and they've lifted themselves up to a position of I'm on the moral high ground and if your god is not, you know, up to my standards then I don't, I'm not going to believe in him. Then you have what was the next one there? Christians, scriptures don't accept gay marriage, transgendered cross-dressing, that sort of thing. So, but that's a moral critique again. You're saying, you Christians, you're immoral, you're intolerant. And then the, the old white man uh, trope, which I, I absolutely despise. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping one day to become an old white man. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I was once in a class at, at Boston University, and it was an ethics class which I was forced to take for the record. And so we had a black teacher. Pretty much everybody else is white. And uh, one of the guys who's like trying to be excessively like progressive and like with it says, well, we all know that old dead white men are all wrong. And everyone's just like, yeah, everybody knows that. You know, we need to find like some minority to tell us about ethics. And it was just like, isn't that racism? You know, like should the color of your skin determine what value your beliefs have? So, these are criticisms that we face. So, the response, what do we do? I list a, just a couple of books here two by Nancy Piercy, Total Truth, which I just been reading myself, haven't gotten through it all the way. Uh, and then, Love Thy Body is her most recent book, came out this year, which I uh, did a whole presentation, well, not just on that book, but like a, a lot of it at uh, the theological conference recently. But uh, then you have Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. And the, the approach is, is pretty pretty simple. And I, I, I recommend this to you in your conversations with people. So if you, like, glazed over during the history lesson, get these one, two, three at the bottom right corner. Number one, identify a longing in the culture. So in other words, start, like Jerry said, start with their heart. Start with their issue. What are they on about? What is the issue in the, in the culture? And then you can show how our society, step two, fails to meet this desire, or solve this problem. And then last of all, show how lived Christianity satisfies the longing, enabling a life of authenticity. I didn't say much about that term, authenticity, but according to Charles Taylor, who wrote a big tome on it, we live in the age of authenticity. Uh, My favorite example is that Disney, uh, with the ice, what was that one called? Frozen. Thank you. You know, Elsa goes off to the wilderness because she has, like, snow powers, and uh, she sings Let It Go, right? And that song really encapsulates the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age where we're at right now, which is there's no right, there's no wrong. I just have to be me, like over against society, over against my, who is it? Like her sister she left behind? My sister, over against everyone else. I just, I've, I've got to be a bird and I've got to fly, you know? Or I've got to be a snow queen and build a snow castle, whatever it is. It's called hyper-individualism. The individual over against everything else, you look within to find truth and then you make that your reality and no one dares to ask you about that. So that's, that's sort of like this, this trend of authenticity. But as Christians, we can tap into that too because the most authentic person, even more than Elsa, is Jesus Christ. You look at his life, you look at like, how he dealt with people, what kind of situations he faced. Think about it th- like this. He's the only one that never sinned. So he's entirely authentic, totally consistent to his beliefs that he is God's son, that he is the Messiah, and so on. That, and Jesus rails on hypocrisy. I mean, if you were having lunch with Jesus and you wanted him to like get red in the face, just like talk about hypocrisy. I mean, he just, pff, Matthew 23, read it sometime. I mean, just whoa, whoa, eight woes against the hypocr- hypocrites, right? So Jesus is still as attractive today. I mean, I think Jesus is just attractive in every generation somehow, which is awesome. Bring it back to him rather than like defending your denomination or your group or like your old white men. Forget about the old white men. Let's talk about the Middle Eastern guy who could be at this conference because he was in his 30s. Let's talk about Jesus and talk about his authenticity, him being true to life. But anyhow, I want to run through this strategy with you on a few different issues, kind of open it up here, and uh, I want you to identify for me the longing, the failure, and how Christianity succeeds for each of these. So first off, let's talk about, I was just trying to like brainstorm some issues that that are just around in the air. Let's talk about gun violence. What is the longing of our culture behind that issue? Security. Security. Yeah. Parents want to have their kids come home at the end of the day. You, You do drills and stuff? Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. I mean, it's, it's something our society is very much engaged with. So, how is our society failing to fix this problem?
1: Our culture now is very reactionary
0: instead of
1: active in a good way. Something bad happens, oh, we need to react, and now we need to control from that ever happening again by restricting this, that, or, everything, or the other you thing.
0: Know. Well, the big thing is to restrict gun purchasing, right?
1: Yeah. Or to arm more people.
0: Oh, you're you could be packing because you're a well, teacher. I mean, but
2: that's yeah. Security. You've got either end. you've got yeah. table,
0: right. guns, or let's give guns to teachers. Right. Which. How do you feel about that?
2: Honestly, I'd like to have some more armed guards. I am scared sometimes because even being in an elementary school is not doesn't keep you from that violence anymore. Mm-hmm. And evil exists, and this is where you, what you were talking mm-hmm. about, and evil's not going to go away. And I was thinking about, I was listening to the radio, and another incident I was in the car with Aaron, my, my older son, and I just kept, said, you know what? This is terrible, but it's true. The thing that stopped the bad guy with a gun was a good guy with a gun. But the whole incident still happened because evil exists. <coughs> so it's not, you either become Australia where they round up all the guns, which then you use knives. <laughs> evil will still
3: find
0: a plan. You're expressing exactly what, what I was hoping, which is the society is sort of like tied in a knot on this issue, and you have the, the one side that says, okay, this is what we need to do is restrict gun purchasing. Well, there's already 300 million guns in the country. It's enough for every man, woman, and child. So, like, that's not necessarily going to stop anyone. I mean, maybe it'll stop some. I, I don't want to say it doesn't stop any. And then you have the other side, which is like, no, we just need more guns. It seems like Not, not that neither of those would do any good, but it seems like a very small band-aid over a really big problem. A lot of us have the sense that our society is really just confused, definitely upset, but certainly also confused about what to do about this issue. So now let's talk about Christianity. How can Christianity offer a solution where the society does not?
3: help heal the wounds that started the violence in the first place.
0: Talk more about that, what do you mean?
3: Uh, What, at least from what I've read and seen, the people that are committing these atrocities are coming from a place of either, you know, being bullied, having some kind of, you know, uh, mental struggles, um, that home lives, you know, fathers, you know, parents in general just who are not invested in them, Um, Which goes directly against God's original intention for how the family unit would work and for people to take care of one another so if we can get back to the the grounding of Having God's morals ingrained in there from the beginning we can start to address the wounds that cause these people to lash out in Mm. such violent ways
1: Kind of expand on that. We've kind of allowed our children to believe that they're at the center of the world. So when they've been offended, they get to turn around and hurt other people. So kind of making it more about God and you know, the world instead of, well, you've been hurt, so go ahead and do what you want to do and kill a bunch
0: of people. Did any of you watch the Nicholas Cruz video? This is the most recent, I think he's the most recent shooter. So he he recorded a video of himself. It's like two, three minutes long. And he talked about how, like, people, people were calling him names and how nobody's going to say that about him anymore and how he actually specified a goal of killing 20 people uh, because he thought that that would get him essentially celebrity status. I'm not a psychologist, but, like, he did not, to me, come across as an insane person. He came across as a wounded person. And what I thought was so striking about the video was how, this is maybe a Justin point, uh, how poor the quality was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, like, holding his own camera, and it's probably in his phone, and it's just, like, he, he doesn't apparently know about, like, the flip around feature or something. I don't know. What, what that said to me is that, like, there's no one else here. Yeah. There, like, there is no friend. Like, all it would take is one friend to say, dude, you can't do that. And boom, he probably... Had a sec, you know, second thought or, or stop planning it or whatever on this issue, like so many issues, Christianity actually has a really powerful solution to a major problem in our culture, and again it 's not going to fix every single thing because we live in a fallen world and we believe in you know evil and and, and spirits and so on but like uh, at least this gives us something other than I think we should outlaw the AR 15, like how many times are you going to hear that debate and then you have the, the two sides and then nothing happens? Like how many times are we going to go around that and just like be angry? What if, hypothetically, Christian churches across this land, 71% in the United States self identify as Christian, by the way. Uh, even, even if like the power structures of the culture and in the, in the uh, like Hollywood and the government and stuff like that maybe are pushing a secular agenda, I think that is also true. But by and large, this is still a nation with a majority of Christians, and so like, what if Christian churches across this land decided to challenge their high school kids to be activists who target the outcast for Christ-like love? I mean, that might do something. The hard thing about it is it would be really hard to measure because, like, how many of them are going to be like, well, if, if nothing happened, then I would have shot up to school in five years or two years or whatever. But, I mean, I feel like at least we, we have something positive to do uh, that Christianity can actually tap into, like Renee said, the, the, the real root of the problem here. Let's switch to sexual harassment, uh, another issue in our culture. What's the uh, longing there in our society? What, what are people after in the whole sexual harassment. Think of Matt Lauer with the button under the desk that locks the door. Total creep, right? What's the longing? Or what's what's the longing against sexual harassment?
1: Respect and dignity.
0: Respect and dignity. I think you're right. See, now nobody ever says that, do they? They're just like there's outrage and there's like we need to we need to simmer them down, you know, decrease their insane drives, you know, men are the problem, no, the problem is respect and dignity, women want to be respected, well, men, men too, uh, respected, and sexual harassment violates that at a fundamental level, it says, you do this act for me, and I will give you a promotion, or if you don't, you're fired, or hey, let's just, you know, mess around, and there's no strings attached, or wh- wh- whatever it is, but it's, di- it's done in an inappropriate way, where you're supposed to be at work, How is our society failing to fix this problem of sexual harassment? Or what is our society doing about it? Because there's a lot they're doing. We're going to prosecute and blame the offenders we can find, right? Yeah, yeah. We use... And maybe too quickly sometimes. I think there's a lot
1: of um, raising awareness on what consent means, but I think that's positive, so...
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's not like our society only does bad things. Uh, Yeah, so raising awareness about consent, what that means, uh, firing people who are guilty.
4: In my
1: opinion, they're doing the same thing where
4: the reaction is all about
1: the the superfluous stuff. It's not about the hard attitude of what the actual problem is. It's about dealing with the fringe around the edges. Okay, we know you did something bad, so we can control you. But that doesn't address... Why they got there, or how you know, you have to go back to the beginning, Mm -hmm. and all the people that they don't know about, all the people that you haven't caught—that's the problem. But we're just grasping at straws and just grabbing around the bridge. And it's—I mean—and that can still be a good thing. I mean, obviously, you want people disciplined or punished for their inappropriate actions, but it's still not addressing the heart attitude,
5: which is the problem. Mm -hmm. We have a thing in our business where. we have quite a few employees, and, and we'll talk to them when something comes up about you know, not wanting to have to make a bureaucratic regulation for the company, right? You know, don't, don't make me have to make a rule about this. And the idea is that if the if person behaves in, in a re- respectful way to begin with, um, you don't have to have a rule, right? You know, it's it's like the, you know, the great commandment, of love one
0: Right. right.
5: All, all of the law is wrapped up in that one thing. Right. So, you, you, what what law are you going to break if you're loving? Right. And so that that we we, we see this in, in work all the time, where if we can get people to celebrate big mm-hmm. acting out of respect and that kind of thing. You don't have to make a rule, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it doesn't work that way. And you know, it, and it doesn't take that many, you know, people, not self-regulating for you to go, okay, now we have to make a rule, and you have to control the behavior. What I see in that is that that fringe that you're talking about is the controlling the behavior. We make these rules to control the behavior, right. but we're not really dealing with what's created
0: in the person. But
5: yeah. I'm not just talking about sexual harassment. It you know, it could be making sure to you know not leave a mess in the bathroom or something. Right. Like that. It yeah. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's yeah. all the same thing. It's it, you know, it's are are you behaving in a way that is respectful to other people, or are you behaving in a way where you don't really care about that, you just
0: care about what you want. Right. It? Yeah. Well, I, I think we can agree that the society is struggling to deal with the issue. Now, how can Christianity offer a solution here? What do you think? I don't think Christianity deals to this concept of self
5: governance, right? That we're all individually responsible for, for that, that code of behavior. Um, I don't know if it's a solution, but it
6: seems like it's subjective.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the Christian worldview has some real. Great uh, grounding for respect. I mean, which was, which is really the issue with sexual harassment. Like, if you really respect somebody, you're not going to objectify them or dehumanize them and treat them like uh, an object. You're, you're going to treat them like a uh, another person. So, like, even just the image of God theology that we see right in chapter one of the Bible gives us a starting point for talking about male-female relationships. You see Adam and Eve, and they are very very much like mutually dignified in the created order. If you are approaching it from a completely naturalistic worldview, if you can get away with it, why wouldn't you, you know, use any kind of sexual harassment you can? So I feel like we have a huge advantage, at least, to show respect. But then I think you add to that the Christian sexual ethic of uh, sex than marriage, using marriage as a boundary for sex. And you, you cut down on so much of the, uh, like water cooler fishing expeditions where like a guy goes up to a girl and he's like, so Friday, you know, and, uh, it's, and it's not like, I want to take you out Friday and show you a good time. It's like, I want to hook up Friday. And if she's not into it, you know, she smiles and she feels awkward and she's like, oh, well, you know, I'm busy this Friday. And then now it's like, okay, so Saturday, you know, and, uh, you know, you have guys that, that are, that are like that. And, um, you know, I think, uh we we do have some significant advantages uh on that issue i don't really know like one thing that we could like do as a society like other you know like john was talking about in his own company he can sort of like call people to be more respectful of their surroundings and and so on but i'm sure there's probably something do you have a suggestion it's
4: kind of hard to expose a non-christian person to a church environment if they're not interested in it but i mean if you're just hanging out with people and you kind of invite them to your culture you can see that you know as exemplified if, if they talk about in the new testament about you know we're brothers and sisters in christ if you treat you know if women treat the men the men treat the women as brothers and sisters there's not inappropriate stuff going on i mean in, not to say you know nobody is seeking a spouse or anything like that, it, but you know we're we're respectfully doing that in a proper way. And I think that's that's different. I mean,
0: well, seeking a spouse and seeking a you know a hookup are two totally different things.
4: And in, in, it's like, but you're showing a different way of doing that too. You can tell a difference when you're with a group of people that are. It's just a totally different environment and
0: yeah. the way people are treating you. So you're saying maybe we could model a better way of treating, yeah, you know, the opposite I mean, sex.
4: Environments where people were not doing that very well, and that was kind of a bad example for unbelievers. And I've also been in environments where it was done very well. and I definitely felt more, you know, respected, and I felt like this is a good example for unbelievers.
0: So I think also in the workplace, just expanding your idea a little bit, if you see something and you're uh, Especially, well, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl. But, like, if you see, if you see it happening, all, all it takes is, like, one, one voice to, to be like, hey, I'm a guy, and, like, there's another guy, and he's, like, making this move, and you can see she's not into it. You just be like, yo, she's not interested. You know, and, like, that'll shut it down like that. I mean, like, advocating a little, I mean, obviously it depends on the situation. Um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're standing outside a bar on a Saturday night at 2 in the morning, that line might get you in some serious trouble. But, um, you know, <laughs> in the workplace, you should be able to speak up and be an advocate for respect. Now, you know that that person doesn't have the same Christian groundings that you have, but they're, they're still in the wrong. So I feel like there is, there is space there to, to sort of like being... Ex- somebody had hands up over here. It's similar
2: to what you said about the guy the children getting our high school kids and getting our middle school and even our elementary school yeah. kids, to go out and be people that target the, the person.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: It's the same it, willingness to have a voice and to speak up because we do a lot of training with bullying and whatnot. And the majority of people are just the
1: silent observers who are too afraid to say it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I got I got bullied in junior high and it was it was like torture. But like there were always a bunch of people around like, all, all, and all it would have taken was one moderately sized dude uh, or like really boisterous woman to, to, to like put the lid on it, and this kid would have. But I think you see, you know, even with the
2: Hollywood stuff, with the people who are, oh my gosh, I can't believe this, you all knew what was going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it just takes a person to speak up
0: and to be willing to take on. What were you going to say, Julie? I, I
1: don't know, like, this is like some experience, and I'm going to
0: brag on my
1: husband. But I just want to say that people notice friends and people that you're around, and your husband is uh, steeped in, in the scriptures and shows that in his life with his wife. There are so many people that encourage us that the husband just treats their wife terrible out public. I mean, says things, criticizes them, I mean, just acts terrible to them. And you know, when you have a husband that shows respect to you, loves you. The women notice. I mean, they take notice that your husband... They say something. They go,
2: oh my gosh. They notice the difference in your
0: marriage and your husband. <laughs> right, so like even in the grocery store being an example...
2: Everywhere. I mean, and it will open the door for opportunity to talk. To them. They'll say, what?
1: Why?
0: See that? What? Yeah. Alright, I'm going to jump to one last issue. Just, I, I, I wanted to try this approach out with you guys because it is a way to advertise Christianity in a sense, before actually getting to an evangelism encounter or a gospel presentation, that somebody, somebody's defenses aren't already up before you start talking, okay? Because you're talking about gun violence, or you're talking about sexual harassment, or you're talking about, um, well, we could talk about scientific progress. We could talk about science. You know, this is a topic that people talk about. They talk about Uh, medical advances. They talk about technology and these kinds of things. The default position for many of us is to say, oh, that has nothing to do with Christianity. Christianity is this thing we do over here. And like technology, totally morally neutral, right? Well, because it's totally morally neutral, it needs some sort of moral compass, right? So like it needs something. Otherwise, it's just going to be used in all kinds of crazy ways. What, What do you think is the core longing behind Technology and technological advancement. What are we looking for feel to make life easier? To feel connected to people. To feel connected, right? Uh, what about I don't know cars? Like, what's what's the desire behind there? Yeah, I, I think. Status. i my I, <laughs> well, yeah, God, status. I, I think Shelby, you probably you probably get to the heart of it the most there, where you say to make life better. You know, the idea is like make make your life better, make the world a better place. To to do something that uh, is is good, but then how how what what social failures has technology been a part of?
1: connected us. We don't have social skills
0: anymore. Okay, lo- loss of social skills. Pornography. To be independent, you know.
5: mm-hmm. I can do everything without you. Right.
1: It also only shows part of you. Mm -hmm. I think the big thing with technology is that we now can hide Mm -hmm. a lot of the bad stuff and only show the good stuff because we're still wanting that respect and that dignity. So if I show only this part, then people will think i in a certain
0: way. Right, right. Well, I think a lot of our weapons are actually technological advancements as well. Bombs are made of technology, right? And uh, so if we look at the wars of the 20th century, for example, a lot of what we've done with technology is kill each other much more efficiently than in the old days where you had to lug this big sword and, like, you try to swing it at somebody, but they're wearing armor and, you know, I mean, it's just, like, a lot easier to kill people when you're just going like that or just, right? I mean, so I think a lot of the technology has, has been used to kill each other, to separate. This is really... Another issue, and and people bring it up, especially like what Julie was saying with like the texting and um, uh, people just like buried in their phones. It's like one of the number one um, criticisms of whatever the post-millennial generation chooses to call themselves is that they are in their rooms and they're depressed. Uh, There was a recent report out in some big publication, I forget which one, that um, for like the first time in like forever, teens are having less sex with each other than like, any time on record, like high school pregnancies are way down. They're just like not physically interacting. And uh, they were like, wow, I can't believe this. And, and depression is way up. Teen depression is way up and sex is way down. Uh, so that's like a half win, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but um, how does Christianity offer a solution here for technology or for any of this uh, science type stuff? What do you think?
3: You to get the word out and spread it. Use it to connect, like virtual fellowships, things like things like that. Even like what we're doing with the live stream, just using it to make the word more available, especially in places where getting the written word to people, like having vitals and things like that, is much much more difficult.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it solves the issue on several accounts. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the belongingness and community connection, in which people uh, use technology to achieve that. Um, And I think that uh, the corporate worship environment of the Christian faith, of coming together and being part of Mm -hmm. of, of, of a community who is demonstrating their devotion to their Creator, I think that promotes uh, a great sense of community. And I think also the idea of problems with the depression and the way that social media allows somebody to recreate themselves in their own image. I think that that does the greatest disservice to criticizing and being uh, having very low uh, self-worth because you see yourself not being good enough where the Christian message uh, provides inherent value and worth in every single person. And uh, through the Christian faith, understanding that uh, God has invested each person with his image and the ability to function within his church mm-hmm. on equal pl- on equal playing like there there's no partiality there's no uh, favoritism that uh, it's not that if you're six over six foot you're like now better christian because you can play basketball you know it's so like there there's it solves i think a lot of the issues where uh, technology particularly with social media and other digital uh, devices cyberspace where people can isolate themselves mm-hmm. and and live within a virtual world that's disconnected, and the Christian faith says it's not, you don't have to be afraid to live in the real world. Mm-hmm. And that being in the real world, being who you are, that you're you're part of something greater. And so I think it sort of like solved that issue. But getting people to step away from the virtual world, I think is another issue, because people like being able to recreate themselves and to make themselves better in the ways that they think are
0: deficient. Mm-hmm. I think that's another challenge, though. Yeah. Christianity offers a really simple, awesome ethic in love your neighbor as yourself that I think could really help science. I mean, if you, if you really look at scientific progress and whatnot, I mean, it's, take nitroglycerin. I mean, you can use it to, I think it's like, can fix a heart attack or something, it's some sort of medicinal value. You can use it to build. A, a tunnel through a mountain, or you can strap it on your body and blow up a coffee shop. It's the same chemical reaction. Uh, well, maybe not exactly the same for the heart, the heart medicine, but uh, it's, it's the same stuff, but like you, you're using it for different things. And, and the technology companies is not asking the question like, well, I don't know what they're asking, but like, the question that they need to ask is like, is this good? Is this going to be, how can we use this for good? And uh, so... Like I said before, we are still a majority in the United States, not even close, I mean we're a vast majority in the United States, and we are all being told, keep your religion private, keep it in the home, keep it in the church, don't bring it to work, and yet who do you think is working in the, in the, the companies that produce these different technologies that then get used in these different ways? You know, a lot of them are Christians, so I think being able to speak up a little bit and say, hey... I think we should put this limit on this or do it this other way so that people don't use it for that, is a way that Christianity could, the Christian worldview could be helpful in in these kinds of uh, workplace contexts. One of the things that
5: that is a big deal in our culture is entertainment. And uh, so I'm thinking about what you're talking about in terms of how as Christians do we... You know, and I think typically the way people think about that in terms of whether you're talking movies, television, games, whatever, that people tend to think about it in terms of sort of moral codes. That you know, uh, you know, if we make Christian movies that you know don't have all this bad stuff in it, that that, that that's what we can do to affect the culture. But but the um, the way I thought about this for some time is that. The, the problem with entertainment is, is not so much presenting the raw stuff of life, right? And You make a, a, a movie about sexual harassment, right? The problem is whether it tells the truth or not. And you know, so let's say you're gonna, you're gonna make a movie or write a story about adultery and you write it where the, the people committing adultery that they end up together because they were really soulmates and they shouldn't have been in those other marriages in the first
0: place. That's telling a lie. Mm -hmm. That's not not the
5: truth about marriage. It's not not even the truth about reality. That's not how how it works. But on the other hand, if the story is telling a a story about adultery where lives are destroyed, Mm -hmm. where it's ugly, and the end is
0: bad, Mm -hmm. it's a tragedy, that's actually telling the truth, yeah, and that has value. Did you see that movie Flight with Denzel Washington? That was one of these rare movies where I came out, and I was just like, this movie is going to do a lot of good in the world because it was about, a, uh, it was about an alcoholic, and like, his, just, his life just crashes and burns. There is like, a little tiny like, Christian thing at the very end, too, which made me really happy, but uh, definitely a rated R movie. It was telling the truth about if you are an addict and you don't do something drastic about it, like this is what your life is going to... Yeah, so I think it's definitely true.
5: And relating all of that back to, you know, how do we as Christians, um, you know, how do we uh, you know, affect the culture in, in a positive way? How do, how do we bring the gospel, how do we bring Jesus into the, in the culture? Is, I think truth has a lot to do with it. But not truth in the sense of trying to create just another mass, which is what... Casey was talking about earlier that people do with social media is they create a mask. Instead of creating a mask where, well, I'm a good Christian and I, you know, and I'm going to present this good Christian face to the world and that's how I'm going to to affect the world. You think about when Jesus tells the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the publican coming to pray into the temple. The publican uh, or the the Pharisee talks about how good he is mm-hmm. and how he's thankful that God hasn't made him like the sinner over here and all this kind of stuff, but he's got that mask on. And the sinner, the publican, comes into the temple and he prays and he beats his chest mm-hmm. and he cries out, oh,
0: God be merciful to me, um, sir. sinner." Jesus
5: asks, who walked away righteous, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody hangs their head and says the sinner walked away righteous. And actually, when John talks about the idea of walking in light or walking in darkness, the Pharisees walking in the darkness and this the sinner that publicans walk in light. And that I think is is the truth that we bring to to mm-hmm. people and, and, and the reality is we take off the masks
6: and we we are all all of us fallen human beings. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian
5: or non-Christian, you are a fallen human being. Yeah. And you are you are either the Pharisee who's putting on the mask and, and walking in darkness or you're the sinner who's taken off the mask and is crying out in authenticity right yeah
0: i I just wanted to say one last thing we've got one whole minute left uh is that on your uh handout here there are people in our world today i know i presented this as like categories of time but there are people in our world today that operate by all of these Mm -hmm. there are some people you're going to meet the more scientific analytical types and you give them uh four arguments for God's existence, and they're like, QED, sign me up, where do I go to church? And uh, then, there, then there will be other people that it really is an authority issue. I once met an older uh, gentleman, and I, I was talking to him about my faith, and he said, I was born a Catholic, I'm going to die a Catholic, and there's nothing you can ever say to me that's going to change that. And I said, well, just hypothetically, what if Catholicism were wrong? Would you still want to believe it? And he said, yes, absolutely. So he, he, there's no, that's not rational. That's not lived experience, that's authority. He was, he was operating from that authority structure. He, he, rec- he locates authority within the church, and so the only way to deal with that is to put doubt in whatever you have that authority uh, invested in. So I've kind of focused on the bottom right, Box the whole time here, but um, these other things are good to think about and to deal with people on. And the only way we're going to find out is if we ask questions, like Jerry was saying before, to find out where somebody's coming at and what their their thoughts are. Well, that's all I got. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. I've got a link in the show notes to the other talks in this apologetics conference as well as to my entire apologetics class, which you can listen to for free and develop further your ability to think through the faith as well as how to engage with others. That's it for today. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.